We are continuing in Joshua this morning. Last week we saw that Israel made it across the Jordan River to the other side. And we saw in that God's prescription, if you will, for not being forgetful. And we talked a lot about the importance of of remembering. And so this week in chapter 5, you might imagine that having just crossed the river with the adrenaline pumping, that they'd be ready to go and ready to take the land. Let's go get it. But in fact, and they may have even thought that they were ready to do just that, but in fact, they are not ready. There's something still lacking. What could it possibly be? What could they possibly need? They're getting ready to go into battle. They know that much. They can see the walled city in front of them. What, what is it that they need? Do they need, a, do they need a pep talk? Do they need Joshua to go through the camp Braveheart style and fire them up? Uh, no. See, their lack of readiness goes a lot deeper than their emotions. They've got to come to some conclusions about who God is and about what God said that He would do. They've got to wrestle with some deep truths. And, and, and in doing so, they'll get fired up. They'll be inspired, right? The emotions will be stirred, but it'll go a lot deeper than just the emotions. And I think that's exactly what we need this morning, right? It's nice to be pepped up, fired up, but very often we need to be stirred a lot deeper than just our emotions if we're going to get ready for whatever it is we're facing. And there are a bunch of us here this morning, right? We're all facing different stuff, right? Uh, some of us are, are facing trials or, or dilemmas, um, difficult situations, maybe even tragedies. Right? And if you think, well, gosh, there's just not, not much going on right now, then you've at least got just the daily grind. Right? Just the daily grind, the battle with sin and temptation. How do you get ready for that? Well, if we look at Joshua 5 today, I think that we will see how Israel got ready for their big battle, for their big situation that they faced. And I think that we can see the very same things that you and I can do to get ready for whatever it is that's on our horizon this morning. So if you're able, I ask for you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Joshua chapter 5, the very words of God. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haaraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. 
Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say? To his servant. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Our prayer is that the Lord would bless the reading and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. God, we come to you. Uh, Again, thanking you for your word. What a gift to us that you have given, that you have preserved throughout the centuries. And we come also again asking your help. We need your help if we're to understand rightly your word. We need your help if you're going to, to wield this word even as a powerful sword in our hearts. Removing from our hearts unbelief replacing it with faith. We pray that you do that very thing this morning by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So here's what Israel had to do to get ready. And here, I think, is how we can benefit just as much from their preparations in what we have to get ready for. You've got an outline in your worship folder if that helps you follow along. Four things that we need to do to get ready. And they all begin with A. First one, acknowledge that God has gone before you. Whatever you're getting ready for, acknowledge that God's already there. He's already gone ahead. Verse 1, we see yet another reminder of what God's been doing behind the scenes for His people, what He's specifically been doing in the hearts of their enemies. Uh, Verse 1, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites, all the kings of the Canaanites, 
As soon as they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they'd crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them. We first heard this report from Rahab back in chapter 2. When the spies entered the land, when they entered Rahab's house, she said, hey, look, guys, the whole place is petrified of you. This whole, this whole country has heard what your God has done for you, and we are scared to death. We are scared to death. And so we saw even last week in the crossing of the Jordan, that's what God intended to do by causing them to cross the Jordan in such a miraculous way. God could have chosen any ordinary mundane way to get them across the Jordan, or around the Jordan for that matter. But no, he chose this spectacular, miraculous, glorious way that he'll dry up the river and let them walk across. And we see here in verse 1 that it had its desired result. Scared to death. Right? They were already scared. Now they're more scared. Right? Or else they would have been on the banks of the river waiting for God's people. Right? They'd have been right there ready to attack as soon as they crossed if they weren't already scared to death. Can you imagine the Canaanites perched up on top of the Jericho wall, right? looking out? Right? They've already heard. They're already scared to death. Oh my gosh, hey Bill, come look at this. You're not going to believe this. Remember the river? Yeah, well, it's gone. Okay? Part of being ready, we've got to acknowledge. We've got to say to ourselves, maybe even out loud, the, the Lord has gone before. The Lord has gone before me. Wherever He's calling me to go, He's already there, He's already been at work. He's not just preparing me. He can even prepare the situation, the people in the situation. He's Lord over all of that. He's gone before me. He's prepared the way. It's echoes even out of that catechism question that we asked and answered earlier. Right? Without His permission, not even a hair. Right? He's gone before. He's in control. And it might seem simple. But even for us just to acknowledge the fact that He's gone ahead, that He's there, that He's already been at work, y'all, that's a powerful thing for us. That's powerful preparation for whatever it is that we're getting ready for. We've got to acknowledge that He's gone before. Second thing, we've got to accept that God demands covenant faithfulness. So verse 2, let's just go ahead and jump in. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Well, isn't that a fun topic? Hmm. All right. So let's refresh ourselves just a bit. What's the big deal? What's the big deal about circumcision? Right? I think it, and it gets mentioned over and over. It's like nine times, I think, in this passage. What's the big deal? Well, best place to go is Genesis 17, where it originated, right? where the Lord gave it to Abraham uh, in the first place. Uh, so Genesis 17, let's throw that up on the slides there. There we go. So here it is from Genesis 17, beginning in chapter 7. 
So God's talking to Abraham. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So there's, there's the heart, the essence of the covenant. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. Right? So verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. All right, so here we are, Joshua 5. We're on the verge of the land. We're on the verge of this promise being fulfilled, right? I'm going to be your God and a God to your descendants after you, and I'm going to give you the land. Well, here it is. We're on the doorstep. Keep going. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. All right? So there's this sign. Right? Here's how you're going to visibly demonstrate that you, in fact, do belong to me, that I am your God and that you are mine, you're going to bear this sign in your flesh. And jumping down to verse 14, we see what the consequence is of not doing that. Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Right? So here it is. It's a big deal. And here's the what of circumcision, right? Here's the what of circumcision. It's a covenant sign that shows you belong to the people of God. It's a way of being marked out as different. You belong to God. He's your God and you belong to Him. And so faithfulness to the covenant on the part of God's people meant taking the sign and also giving the sign to your children. Right? That's what being faithful to the covenant would look like in a visible sense. Right? So that's the what. Now why? Why on the verge of the land are, are we doing this? Why is Joshua having to engage in this mass circumcision? Verses 4 and 5 explain that for us. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. I love it when Scripture is just so clear like that. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, basically men of fighting age, had died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, so apparently they kept this up even as they were slaves in Egypt, they came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out had not been circumcised. So, in the wilderness wandering, the parents did not give this covenant sign to their children. They were not faithful to the covenant. Numbers 14 is sort of the chapter that explains why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years anyway. And it's a great chapter. I'd recommend, I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. But let me just give you the highlights and then read the last few verses of that chapter for you for time's sake. The people 
had begun to question God. They'd begun to question his purposes and his power. They'd come to a place, in fact, that they thought that his promises, they thought that this covenant business was just impossible. It was too difficult for the Lord to make good on these promises. There was no way he could have done it, they thought. So lacking in faith were they that they even wanted a new leader. Get rid of this Moses guy. Get us somebody who will take us back to Egypt since it was so great in Egypt and we want to go back. They're in absolute rebellion. And so God's decision, and I can't say that I blame him, God's decision is to strike them down and start over. But Moses prays. And in this great example where Moses is sort of this this type of Christ, this this foreshadowing of, of what Christ would do in his work, Moses intervenes. Moses becomes the intercessor for the people. And he says, oh, but God... Please don't do this. Remember this promise that you made. And so... He basically calls God on this covenant promise. He said, wait a minute, you promised. You promised that you were going to take this people and give them this land. And he quotes God back to God. Right? One of the worst things that I struggle with from time to time is when I'm struggling with something or down about something and my wife will quote back to me my own sermons. Right? Like, that just doesn't seem fair. Okay, maybe it's true, but it doesn't seem fair. Moses is quoting God back to God, right? Oh, but God, you're patient and you're merciful and you're loving. And so Moses is reminding God of his own character. And so God says, okay. I will pardon them. I will not destroy them. But there will be consequences. Steep consequences, no less. Specifically that the the adults of fighting age, 20 years and above, won't see the promised land. They will die in the wilderness. So let's look at these few verses at the end of 14 so we fully understand uh, what's going on here in Joshua by, by looking back at this wilderness wanderings. Picking up in verse 29, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. And so you've got to read the whole of 14 to really get this. It's bad, y'all. And that's why we've got... Such steep consequences here. Verse 30, Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey... See, they were, they were just accusing God of all kinds of terrible things. They were saying, You're going to let our little children die. You're going to let our little children become prey to our enemies. Right? Accusing God of this. And God says, um, No, actually, your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I'm going to bring them in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. 
according to the number of days in which you spied out the land. Forty days, a year for each day. You shall bear your iniquity forty years and you shall know my displeasure. Oh, gosh, that's hard. That's hard. So go back and read the rest of 14 so that you understand the full context of what's going on here. But God's doing a couple of things here. Okay? Number one, he, he is, in fact, being true to his word. He's being faithful to the covenant that, that Moses has, has asked him to do. God, be faithful to the promise that you've made. And, and so he is being faithful. He's not wiping them out. He's not starting over. He's being faithful. But he's also showing just how serious a lack of faith is. How deadly a lack of faith is. How harmful it is for you to refuse to believe God is who He says He is and that He'll do what He said He'll do. So when you're outlined, I spelled faithfulness on purpose, right? I, I actually know how to spell it. It doesn't have hyphens. But I kept thinking about faithfulness so much this week. And, it, and it's interesting to me how sort of in, our, in the way that we understand language and we use words, we've come to this place where faithfulness a lot of times is just a synonym for obedience, right? If you look at this point in the outline, right, God demands our covenant faithfulness, right? And so we're thinking in our heads, obedience, right? Because being faithful does tend to mean that we do that which we are supposed to do, right? And so in the wilderness, for example, God's people failed to do what they were supposed to do. They were not faithful. They did not give the sign of the covenant to their children, But you see, it's deeper than they just didn't do this thing that they were supposed to do. There's a reason they didn't do that thing they were supposed to do is that they were not full of faith. They did not believe that God is who He says He is and that He'll do what He, say, what he says He will do. And so if God's people are going to be ready to enter this promised land, right, this land that has been promised, we saw even in Genesis 17, if they're going to be ready to enter the land that has been promised, they have got to be full of faith. If you and I are going to be ready for whatever it is that we're facing, we've got to be brought back just like these Israelites. They had to be brought back to a point where they were full of faith. And that's what's going on here with circumcision. See, the ultimate concern here is not the slicing off of a little bit of human flesh. That's not the point. And even God's people understood that. That's not just something that we understand now looking back. They knew back then that it was more than just human flesh. Look at Deuteronomy 30 if you want to. They understood that this act represented something deep inside. They knew that it was ultimately the heart that needed to be cut on. They knew that it was unbelief that needed to be cut away and replaced with and allowing them to become full of faith. 
But now when you look at this in the story, um, I hope that you're asking these next two questions, right? So circumcision is important. What it represents is even more important. But um, do we have to do it right here, right now? Like, is that really the best time and place for this? What it does is it really ups the ante for God's people needing faith in God being who he said he was and that he'll do what he said he would do. Because it seems rather foolish to wound your warriors deeply right before battle and right in the backyard of their enemies. Why not do this on the other side of the river? That would have made a lot more sense if you want to see how well grown men who have recently been circumcised are able to defend themselves. You can read Genesis 34. Right? Interesting little story. Had to double check on the reading plan yesterday that, yesterday that that wasn't going to show up on a Sunday. And it's not. It's a Wednesday. All right? But go read it. Genesis 34. You'll see how well men are able to defend themselves after being recently circumcised. It doesn't make good tactical sense. It's not good military strategy. But that's exactly how God likes to do things, isn't it? It's exactly like him to do it this way. To force us into situations where we have to trust him more deeply and more fully. He does it all the time. Because it's when we're weak and when we're wounded and when we're defenseless that he's got us right where he wants us. Clinging desperately to the fact that, oh, he is who he said he would be. Oh, he will do what he said he would do. He wants us where the need for our faith becomes oh so obvious. Now, when that happens, there is a glorious result. And I think that's a little bit of what this strange little thing in verse 9 is getting at. Let's look at this thing. Verses 8 and 9. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to, a, said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of this place is called Gilgal to the stake. You've probably got a footnote. Gilgal sounds a lot like the Hebrew word meaning to roll. Right? So today is the day I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Well, what in the world is the reproach of Egypt? What does that mean? Well, it could mean a lot of things. I think most likely, right? who were God's people when they were in Egypt? They were slaves. They were slaves. Imagine the disgrace, the indignity, the shame of being slaves. And it's interesting that God says it's on this day that that's been rolled away. And you would have thought it would have been when they crossed the Red Sea and they were free. But for the next 40 years, they would continue to live and act like they were still slaves. They would continue to live and act like as if they didn't have a God who rescues as if they didn't have a God who was faithful to His promises. And so in a very real sense, they were still slaves. They were not full of faith. And they were enslaved to their unbelief. And so it's on this day, 
this day brought back to the point where you're full of faith. They're taking the sign as such in their flesh. Reproach has been rolled away. No longer a slave but free. Next point on your outline. We've got to appropriate His covenant faithfulness. We've got to accept the fact that He demands ours and then we've got to appropriate His. So when I, when I was first dealing with this, so this is about the Passover, okay? This is about their celebration of Passover. And when I was first looking at this, I was thinking, all right, well, they need to remember His covenant faithfulness. But as you're well aware, remember doesn't start with an A. And I'd already committed to the A thing. But remember also doesn't capture the fullness of what we need to do. It's not just remembering God's faithfulness. And Passover was a way to do that. Passover is a great way to, to remember God's faithfulness, to remember and celebrate that miraculous night in Egypt. Right? That night where God's people had made their preparations, they'd killed the Passover lamb, they'd smeared its blood on the doorposts of their houses, and then they waited. And they waited, and they heard the screams start to emerge from every single house in Egypt, screaming and wailing as the firstborn in each and every house in Egypt was killed. Except for God's people. Because for God's people, it happened exactly as God said that it would happen. For those who had taken refuge under the blood of the Lamb, the angel of death did in fact pass over. Just like God said it would happen. God fulfilled His promise. He was faithful. And so in their being made ready to enter the promised land, they're going to celebrate Passover, something that hadn't been done in almost 40 years. But see, it's more than just remembering that they need to do. It's more than just remembering that we need to do. right? Even in our Passover, which is now the Lord's Supper, Right? It is remembering. It is not less than remembering, but it's a whole lot more. We need to appropriate it. They needed to appropriate it. They needed to put that knowledge and that remembrance to use, applying it to their current situation. Connecting the dots, if you will, okay? He was faithful back here in a big, big way. Dot, 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 dot. Why should I not expect him to show up in the same way here? In a way that's probably a lot smaller of a deal than this big, huge thing that he took care of here. In taking possession of the land, we've also got this mentioned in verses 11 and 12. Of, of their what they ate seems rather ordinary, right? They celebrated Passover, then they ate from the produce of the land, and then there was no more manna, right? I, I'm sure that they were so glad to have something other than manna to eat, right? 
But even when you look at both of these, what are both of these if they're not beautiful pictures of God's faithfulness? Right? The manna may have been monotonous, but it was there every single day without fail. And now here they get to begin to eat, even as a foretaste. They're not even in the land yet, and they're getting a foretaste, eating from the bounty of the land that has been promised to them. God's faithful. God is faithful. And we can't just remember it, we've got to appropriate it, right? We can't just remember Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We've got to appropriate it and apply it to our current circumstance. If He's faithful to meet our greatest, deepest need that we could ever have, how will He not also show up in the smaller stuff that we face every single day? So we need to acknowledge that He's gone before. He's already there. Wherever we're going, He's there. He's already been at work. We've got to accept the fact that He demands that we be full of faith, that we be trusting and believing that He is who He says He is, that He'll do what He says He'll do. We've got to appropriate His faithfulness. And finally, we've got to acquiesce to divine assistance. I was reaching a little bit, but I'll explain. Strange little thing happens here at the end of this passage, and most folks don't even know what to do with it. Especially like, does, it, does this really fit at the end of five, or should it go at the beginning of six? What's going on here? But I think it fits perfectly in between these two. And what I think we have going on here is, is this appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Right? I, I think that's what it has to be. Because it's not an angel. It says it's a man, right? Joshua falls down and worships him. And ordinarily when folks get confused in the Bible and fall down and worship people that they're not supposed to, they're told, oh, don't worship me, right? Not so here. Whoever this man is accepts the worship, okay? So what's going on here? Well, obviously he's come to help. He's come to Joshua and to God's people to bring divine assistance. But he does so in a way that really disrupts their categories in the way that they normally think about things, right? Because look at Joshua's question there in 13. He's saying, all right, are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? And I love the answer. No, neither. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. It's like a whole separate category. I haven't come to, to fight on your side. I've come to do this thing. I've come to do this thing for you, which makes a lot of sense when we get to chapter 6 and we see, in fact, how Jericho is defeated. But it's interesting, you know, once he identifies himself, he says, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, that he doesn't then give Joshua a battle plan or fighting instructions. It's like he really hasn't come to give Joshua anything it's, it's almost like he's come to get something from Joshua in the terms of, of reverent submission and, and he gets it right he gets it he falls on his face and worships this is a holy moment now I chose this word acquiesce obviously because it starts with a and I had my little a thing going but then I looked it up just to make sure that it communicated what I wanted to 
And I was accidentally more on the money than I thought. Because acquiesce comes, it's got a Latin root from the word meaning to be quiet. You can see it in the middle of the word there, acquiesce. Right? To be quiet. And you know what? At the end of the day, once we've done all that we can do to prepare for whatever it is that needs preparing for, we've acknowledged that God's already gone ahead of us, that He's there, that He's doing His thing. We've accepted the fact that He, he demands that we believe Him. He demands that we believe He is who He says He is and that He'll do what He say, says He will do. And when we've sought to appropriate His faithfulness, when we've looked back and we've remembered and we've connected the dots and we've said, surely He'll be here in this moment too, then one of the very best things that we can do is shut our mouths and fall down in worship and acknowledge the fact that He's come. He has come. I'm the commander of the Lord and I have come he says, and we get this theme all throughout Joshua. It's going to be layered on and layered on and layered on throughout Joshua. That God's going to do it. God's going to do it. We've got this big command, go in and possess the land that I've already given you. I'm doing it, God wants to say. I'm doing it. I'll show up for you in your Struggle with sin. I'll show up for you in this situation that you're facing. And when you acknowledge that I've gone before, and when you're full of faith in who I am, and you've connected the dots, and you shut your mouth and you fall on your face in worship, you'll be ready. You and I will be ready. Let's pray.